For the next three weeks, we're going to direct our attention on Sunday mornings to thinking about the gospel. In fact, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing and why and give you a quick map for what we're going to do for the next three weeks. We are going to examine the good news of God in Jesus Christ. We've called it the gospel class. And what I mean by the gospel class is it's three simple sermons, three simple lessons that we're, we're going to look at on how can we understand and apply better the good news that God has reached down to save sinners. This is also going to become, I hope, a baseline curriculum that we can use in our Sunday school classes over the next few years, actually indefinitely, to be able to remind ourselves of the gospel and what it is. We have no greater treasure, no greater treasure as a believer, no greater stewardship than to hold the gospel precious and to get the gospel right. If I had time, and we don't, and if I was creative, and I'm not, and if we had paper, and some of you do and some of you don't, I would ask everybody just to take two minutes and write the answer to this question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What if someone asked you that? Someone who was not familiar with the gospel. What is the gospel? It's a word we use all the time. It's actually become a hyphenated adjective. Gospel thinking, gospel-centered, gospel this, gospel that. What is the gospel? Well, our goal is that when we finish this little three-week course on the gospel itself, that we can have a better understanding and be able to articulate and explain it. Let me give you a little map of what we're going to do. Today, we're going to look at the gospel from a high-level theological perspective. In fact, there there are going to be so many passages this morning, you're going to want to just write them down and probably return to them. If you try to turn and catch up, uh, you're welcome to try that and and to do it, but we are going to be moving fast throughout a lot of Scripture. That's what we're going to do today, and stitching Scriptures together to see more of a macro level what the gospel is and the nature of God's heart in giving us salvation. Next week, we're going to synthesize all of that into a simple way to present it to others. We're also going to make sure that we understand it ourselves. As we'll say today and next week and the following week, if you don't understand the gospel well enough to tell someone else the gospel, you don't understand the gospel well enough to be saved. Then the final week... We're going to be very practical. We're going to roll up our sleeves and talk about how to evangelize, but specifically from the angle of taking all that we know about the gospel and using our own testimonies of faith in Christ as kind of the the on-ramp or the syringe to inject gospel truth into the hearts of the people with whom we would share it. That's the goal. Three weeks on our gospel class. Now let me begin by saying this as simply as I can, okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in life to understand. That's a big statement. Let me say it again. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in life to understand. If you miss it, you miss everything. If you get it wrong, you get eternity wrong. It's that important. 
Said another way, what you do with the gospel determines your life before death and also your eternity in the afterlife. Tragically, I continue to see and and assess as we watch evangelicalism roll along and our culture progress, so many people misunderstand the gospel. So many people have pieces of the puzzle, but there is no picture. Some have the frame, but the inner parts of that puzzle are not connected. In fact, the history of the church really can be organized and categorized as great efforts to preserve and articulate the gospel. Every generation has wrestled with this. And if you go to the other side, the history of the devil himself is a heresy and a historical heresy to distort the gospel, to distract people from the gospel's meaning. Now, we keep using this, this term gospel. What is the gospel? Let's look at the word itself first of all. The word simply means good news. It's the Greek word evangelium or euangelium it, from which we get evangelism or the evangel. It, it's a simple word that means good news, good tidings. Why is the gospel good news? Well, the gospel is good news when we understand the bad news of our condition, how desperately we need a Savior, how long is eternity and infinity, how important it is to hear and to understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Listen, we can explain the gospel to someone in just a few minutes. I I have done that in less than a minute with someone. You can also spend the rest of your life studying the nuances and and, and the facets of the gospel. It is both simple and complex. It can be synthesized, it can be expanded. When we're looking at the gospel as it's portrayed in the book of Romans, remember we compare it to a clock, a, a, a very complicated Swiss timing piece, an automatic watch that you can look at the face and simply tell time. And you can open that up and see all the inner workings, the, the clockworks, the gears, and be amazed at how it's put together. The gospel's like that. It's simple and complex. A four-year-old can understand it, and a triple PhD can never get to the bottom of all of its wonders and glories. I was reading this week several books on gospel theology I really was drawn to what Ray Ortland said as he summarized the gospel. Now, I'm just going to read this. I'll read it a couple times. Don't try to get it down. We'll put it on our notes this week when we put those on the website. But listen to how simple and complex this concept is. Ortland writes, God, through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with a promise of full restoration of his created order forever all to the praise of the glory of his grace that's a mouthful can I say it again God through the perfect life atoning death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ rescues all his people from the wrath of God into peace with God with a promise of full restoration of his created order forever, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. That is a sentence of all sentences. And we're gonna take the next three weeks to unpack those realities 
together. Let me begin by a statement that is perhaps could be perceived as hyperbole, but I, I don't think it is. I want to begin with the most important question in the Bible. I know that's a big statement, but I don't know that you can give me another question that is posed in the Bible that is more important than this one. Is he in the, is in the midst of horrific and indescribable suffering? Job comes to chapter 9 after suffering physically, suffering emotionally, suffering tragedy and losing his family, having uh, discord with his wife, literally his flesh rotting. After interacting with his friends, theologizing for eight and a half chapters, Job says in Job chapter 9, verse 2, how can a man be in the right before God? Can anyone think of a more pressing question that the Bible asks than that one? How can a man be in the right or be right before God? Can anyone think of a more pressing answer than the answer to that question? And the Bible gives full and deep and meaningful answers to that question. It's in a statement, by the way, how can a man be in the right before God that assumes a presupposition? What is that? That man is not in the right before God. There's a distance, a gap between us and God. Every man, every woman, every child, every infant is conceived, as Psalm 51 says, with an inclination towards sin. I know how we say, oh, he's a good guy, she's a good gal, and, and, and I understand that. Not everyone is as bad as they could be, but every person ever born except the Lord Jesus Christ was born sinful, as a sinner. Of all the lessons parents have to teach their children, how to disobey and sin is never a lesson we have to teach. It comes naturally. Are you in the right before God? As Job asked, are you aware of the tragic reality that we have all been estranged from birth from God? And most importantly, do you understand the provision that God has made to solve this problem? Now, to begin that study today and echoing into next week and extending into the third week, we are going to do a little Bible study. Um, you're going to have to oil up the spines of your Bible and go fast if you want to or just write these passages down and then come back to them later. We're going to cover a lot of Scripture. And there's a reason for that. The Bible is an encyclopedic uh, capturing of the mind of God on gospel truth, the need for the gospel, the provision for the gospel, the person of the gospel, the future of the gospel. And again, I'm going to cover a lot of ground of Scripture you're welcome to write them down, and we will put these on the website, all these texts and quotes this week for you to come back to. What we're going to do is really what we call systematic theology. It's our normal course to take a passage and kind of pull it apart and put it back together, looking at the context, at the nuances of, of every verse and every passage in a given uh, section of Scripture. And, and we, we look at that from almost a, a monocular viewpoint. What does this text say and how do other texts relate to that text? That's our normal course, and I think that's the best way to study Scripture because it unpacks the mind of God as he wrote it. But there is a place for 
taking what God has said in different parts of the word of God and stitching them together. And that's really just called systematic theology. And that's what we're going to be doing this week and next. So the process of bringing together many passages on a given subject and seeing what God has said about it has great and enduring value. And we're going to do that together this morning. We're going to do a study, at least for our introduction today, six pillars of gospel reasoning. Six pillars of gospel reasoning. We're going to go from the most macro level of the gospel realities today to synthesizing it into really three simple points next week. And then in the third week, how can we take that, understand it, and also present it in a way that's cogent and meaningful? Six pillars of gospel reasoning. You could actually, actually say six essential pillars on which the gospel is established. You can certainly add more than what we're going to look at, but there's nothing in this list that you can take away. The first is an obvious place to start, the source for knowing the gospel. Where do we get what we know about the gospel? And our answer at Mission Road Bible Church is what? The Bible, the scriptures. The source for knowing the gospel is the Bible. The Bible is the living word of God. It is a written record of what God has communicated to man that he intends to be categorized and canonized for us. Said another way, what the Bible says is literally what God says. Whatever the Bible speaks about is what God speaks about it. Whatever the Bible says about whatever the Bible says is true. No, the Bible is not a science book, but every time it addresses science, it's accurate. No, the Bible is not a book of philosophy, but every time it addresses philosophical thoughts, it is indeed true. Whatever the Bible addresses is God's very word on that subject. Knowing that, you can go one more level. The most important subject the Bible ever addresses is the gospel. The good news that God has made a provision for man's greatest problem, which is sin, for which he will be cast into hell eternally, and God has sent a rescue mission in the good news of the gospel. It should come as no surprise to any of you that Satan's primary objective is to confuse people about the gospel, to make it more convoluted than it really is, to make it more confusing than it is, to make it more complicated than it is. Paul talks about this to the Corinthians, whose faith was being attacked at the source of their own faith with definitions of their faith that were being misconstrued. Listen to this passage, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness. Paul is going to talk about this foolishness in these first four verses, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed to you one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid lest as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of of devotion to Christ. And then he says this, for if one comes to you and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, 
You bear this beautifully. He says, you're, you're too quick to believe these things. Notice that Paul describes another Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. What is this about? Different from what is what we have to ask. And he tells us in this text, different than what he preached. Paul had apostolic authority. He was one of the apostles that was ordained by God for the spreading of the gospel. His teaching was rooted in Scripture. Everything he says about the gospel points back to the fact that this is rooted in what God has said. It's critical then to look to the Bible, to the Holy Scriptures as the source and authority for understanding the gospel. If not, we will lean on our own understanding. We'll be reduced to intuition and guessing. Listen to how Paul explains the Bible as the basis for God's salvation plan to the Galatians. Galatians 3.8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, there's the gospel, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed by you. There is a mouthful of theology in Galatians 3.8. The reference here is to the promise God made to Abraham, which we call the Abrahamic promise or, or covenant. Genesis 17. And that Abrahamic covenant is, in effect, the beginning of the formal revelation of God's saving plan for humanity, that he will bless the nations and save the nations. Specifically, it's God's decision to reach into humanity and specially save people to and for himself. Paul says, we know about the foundation of the gospel by the scriptures that foresaw this going all the way back to Abraham. Peter also talks about this sufficiency of the scripture for salvation. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true excellence through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. What is he saying there? Everything we need to live life, everything to, we need to know to be godly, to be accepted by God, is in the true knowledge of God in Christ. As Paul told the Corinthians, where is the only true and reliable source for the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus Christ? It's the scripture. Again, the Corinthians we're confused, so Paul shows the very details of the gospel all being related to scriptures. And one of the most concise passages on the gospel in the entire New Testament, in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, listen to how the apostle roots the gospel in scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand by which you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain for I delivered as to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures now there's a world of insight into that because usually the scriptures that Paul talks about are the Old Testament. 
But the record we have of Jesus being raised from the dead are the gospel accounts, meaning Paul is grouping the gospels and the, and the account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead with the Old Testament scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 men at, the, at, at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So twice he says the gospel is according to the scriptures, Old and New Testament revelation. Later he would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak. In other words, the entire corpus of his message is contained in what was written in God's book, in the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. The question at hand then is whether or not you believe what you believe about Jesus, about the gospel, because of what the Bible says or just kind of because of what you think. Almost every in, uh, conversation I have with an unbeliever who is wrestling with the realities of the gospel boils down to why do I believe what I believe about the good news and why they do believe or don't believe what they believe about spiritual realities. And there's only two sources for, for this data, for this wisdom. God and his word, the Bible, or us and our intuition. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe God's reasoning? So it starts with the source. How do we know what we know about God's truth? Because God has said so in his word. Secondly, second pillar of gospel reasoning, the foundation that generates the gospel. The foundation that generates the gospel, namely the nature of God, the nature of God himself. Moses was given unprecedented access and opportunity to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. And you know the scene in Exodus 33 and 34. He's leading the people uh, out to Sinai. Uh, they have worshipped the golden calf. The tablets of the Ten Commandments have been destroyed in, in judging them. He's going to go back up the mountain and receive a new uh, copy of God's revelation and God's law. And when he does so, God invites him into a very special experience. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will reveal you to you, my goodness. It's a parallel, a synonym to that. So he takes him and he puts him in the, the cleft of the rock, the fissure, the little crack in a rock in order to show him himself. He's gonna get a vision of God. God actually says, I'm gonna show you my afterglow, my backside, the train of my robe. You're gonna see my back, but you can't see my face because no man can see my face and live because of his holiness and our sinfulness. So the day comes, Moses goes up there, God puts him into the, into the rock, little slit that he can see through, walks by, and the text says as he's walking by, God's walking by, he puts his hand over the, over the rock so Moses can't see his face. He gets by, lets it go, and he sees God. What does he see? Well, we, we don't have any idea. 
He doesn't tell us. And it's not because that wasn't powerful, overwhelming, and important. It's because it paled into, in comparison to what he heard. This is what he heard. As God walks by, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, who forgives transgression, who forgives sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. If you count, there are nine expressions of God, God's gracious disposition before the end where he says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. I think there's something telling in God's revelation of himself. This is who I am. I am more inclined to grace and mercy than judgment. Can I give you proof for that? Put your finger on your wrist and feel your heartbeat. He is allowing us another day, another breath, another heartbeat to respond to him. The great God, the holy Lord God, the creator God of the universe who is holy and righteous and loving and compassionate will not leave the guilty unpunished, however. He will be judge and savior. How? We'll see this week and next by sending his son from heaven to earth. I love what Titus, Paul tells Titus in chapter three, verse four, when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Why? Because he's kind and he's saving. His nature matters. We'll come back to this verse a little later. Just bask in the nature of our great saving God who is kind. Here's how Peter describes the heart of God. The Lord in chapter three Second Peter, rather, 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has in his nature and heart a saving disposition. Paul adds that God's heart, heart's desire is for all men to come to him. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the nature of God. He didn't, he wasn't satisfied. He wasn't in any way settled on leaving man in a lost and desperate situation but he chose to be saving because it was in accord with his nature. Which leads us, thirdly, to the need for gospel, understanding the gospel, the depravity of man. This is the context. This is the need for understanding the gospel. And that's our sinfulness. Depravity is a big word for sin or sinfulness. Christianity, by the way, is not one of many ways to God. It is the only way. Why? No other religion, no other religion makes provision for sin. Christianity is not then a personal religion that works for some and not others. Personal for us and other religions work for others? No, that's not it at all. There are only two religions in the world, only two. 
every other religion besides Christianity and biblical Christianity. Every single religion in the history of mankind's thinking is the same religion. It's the religion of human achievement, human works. Do better, try harder, earn God's favor. Only biblical Christianity is a religion of divine accomplishment. It's what God has done for the sinner in Christ that he or she could never do. Religion of human achievement or religion of divine accomplishment. Only biblical Christianity is the one that can save. Now, before we understand the good news of the gospel, we must understand the bad news of our spiritual condition. It's called the depravity of man. Let me say from the beginning, not everyone is as bad as they could be. Not everyone is is Hitler or uh, Saddam Hussein. Not everyone is as bad as they could be. But everyone is born with sin. Everyone has the oak of the worst sins in our heart as acorns. Those little bundles of joy we bring home from the hospital are residences of evil. They come with hearts disposed and broken, disposed to sin and broken from righteousness, just like their mom and dad. The Bible is crystal clear about man's humanity, humanity's complete and utter depth and breadth of sin. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah, he talks about this. Alas, sinful nation, verse 4. People weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children after their parents. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, Isaiah says. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged or softened with oil. In other words, we are sinful from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately wicked, sick. Who can understand it? Isaiah 53, verse 6. That great uh, uh, song about... Isaiah's vision of the, the future and coming shepherd who would save the sheep. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us. Each of us has turned to his own way. And if that's not bad enough or clear enough, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom them too we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, that was our worldview, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If you fast forward Paul's letter To the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as unbelievers, as Gentiles walk in the uselessness, the futility of their mind, their thinking, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's resident within them, because of the hardness of their heart. They become callous, 
giving themselves over to every form of sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could go on and on, passage after passage, page after page in God's word that affirms that we are born with a sin problem. It's our biggest problem. And unless we understand that we are, as my son said to me when he was about six-year-old, in trouble with God, you will never look at God's provision for getting us out of that trouble by his own doing and his own gifting. If we don't understand how depraved we are, if we don't understand the bad news that is us, then we will not understand the good news that is Jesus. Fourthly, the gift to receive in the gospel. Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God. The gift to receive. God was not content to leave humanity condemned to hell and sin. A few minutes ago, we talked about Ephesians 1, 2, 1 to 3, where Paul describes us being children of wrath. Our worldview is bent. Our hearts are broken. We are in trouble, so much trouble that we are dead. And then two of the most wonderful words ever spoken or penned. The next verse in Ephesians 2, 4, Paul says, but... But, God, dead in our trespasses and sins, but, but, but God, being rich in mercy, mercy holds back what we deserve, which is hell and judgment, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. You know what that's saying? If you were a Christian, God holds you up to the angels and to the world as one of his trophies. Look what I did for someone like this. It says he'll do that for all eternity. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift, the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one can brag or boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Salvation is a gift you receive not a task you complete, not a checklist that you check off. What did Jesus say? You know where this verse is? For God so loved the world that he gave, there's the gift, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, John three sixteen. He gifts and gives Salvation to those who receive it. 
but it's important to define eternal life, living forever by Jesus. It's not just, it's kind of odd because we think eternal life, forever, living, living forever. Mm, That's part of it. But Jesus defines this eternal life that he gives us, the gift in John chapter 17. This is eternal life, Jesus says. He's about to define it. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is receiving and understanding and treasuring the gift of God, the greatest revelation that he ever gave humanity in his son. Back to Job for a moment. In Job 9, that chapter that asks how can a man be in the right before God gets to the end and Job is opining and lamenting the fact that he can't get to God. In fact, Job, in one sense, is, is a discussion of what do you do with a God you cannot get to and the same God who you cannot escape from. And he says in Job 9, 32, God is not a man. He's not a man that I may answer him, argue with him, contend with him, talk to him, work things out with him, that we may go to court together. Let's go have a sit down with some folks and find out how I can be in the right with you and you can be in the right with me. God's not a man, so we can't do it. He says there's no umpire, literally the word mediator, no mediator between God and me who may lay his hand upon us both. And then the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and one mediator, umpire, that Job asked for, longed for, between God and man. And the text, New American Standard says, the man Christ Jesus, this is an anarthrous noun in the Greek, which means it has no article, it means it has no the. Literally, it should read, there's also a mediator between God and men, a man, a human, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. What Job longed for, Jesus was and is. Job said, oh, that there was a man who knew you and could talk to me about you. Oh, if there was a man who could talk to me about you, God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, truly man. What a gift. What a gift. In Jesus Christ, we see God the Father and all his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jesus told the disciples, told Thomas, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That's the gift, the gift that we're to receive. Fifthly, the cost of paying for the gospel. Gospel isn't cheap. The cost of paying for the gospel, and that's the cross that we know so well. The central feature in the life of the Lord Jesus was his death, specifically his death on a Roman cross. Now, much has been made, rightfully so, of the torturous brutality of the Roman crucifixion, all that Jesus endured physically and emotionally and spiritually. But the question that we must have an answer to is why. Many of us several years ago saw um, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie that chronicled the graphic details of the final hours of our Lord Jesus and his, his torturous suffering. 
I saw that movie. I remember being troubled at a lot of levels, but mostly thinking this. If someone who did not have any understanding of the Bible in general, the things we're talking about today, watched that movie, their only conclusion could be, that was terrible what they did to that person. It just didn't answer the question, why? Why did this happen to that person? To answer that, we go all the way back to the book of sacrifices, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Chapter 17, which is chronicles the day of atonement, God's way of covering sin. And in the middle of that chapter, Leviticus 17, 11, God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to cover, to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. That's a very important statement. The blood by reason of the life. He's not talking about bleeding. He's talking about dying. The sacrifice of a life. We deserve death. And they did too. So God made atonement by giving them bulls and sheep and goats and every year they had to sacrifice them over and over and over and the book of Hebrews tells us that they wearied over annual sacrifices and yet the Lord Jesus was the final lamb of God who made the once for all sacrifice after which there would never need to be another one Listen how Paul explains this to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, when we were studying the book of Romans, I said, if you have a spiritual self-esteem problem and you don't like being called names, don't read Romans. It causes helpless. That means unable to earn our favor before God. How can a man be in the right before God? That's exactly what Paul's describing. We were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, helpless and ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Speaks of those who would, in, in our vernacular, jump on the grenade for their friends in the barracks when a grenade is thrown in there or, or one who would push someone out of a, uh, 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 the way of a moving car and absorb the impact of that car and save the other person. Someone who would save someone they cared about he says, that's a noble thing. And then he says something interesting. But God demonstrates his own love for us. It's a contrast. We think it's noble to die in the place of a righteous or a good man. He's not talking about spiritual, ultimate, imputed righteousness, but just someone we care about. We think that's a good thing. God doesn't do that. God did not jump on the grenade for his friends. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, sinners against whom? Against him. God in Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, there's that sacrifice. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him for if while we were, here's another one, enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more than having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life? What's he saying? 
contrary to us who think it's noble and it is noble who would give our lives for a friend, God demonstrates his love. He gave the life of his son for his enemies, for sinners, for rebels. Not only this, Paul says, we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received, there's the gifting, received the reconciliation. I love how Peter says it, 1 Peter 3, 18. Christ died once for sins. Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And then Colossians chapter one. Yet God has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death, Jesus' death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The cost for our salvation was the death of the Son of God in our place to atone for our sin instead of us. Salvation had the highest cost possible. I've said to you many times, I I love our church. I look in the faces of people that are my friends that I love so much. As much as I love you, I gotta be honest with you. I don't know any person in this room, I don't know any person, for whom I would choose the death of my son over yours. I'm I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. And I'm sure as a parent, you feel the same way. God demonstrated his own love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He chose to execute his son at that cost to pay for our penalty. You know what that tells us about the the problem of our sin? Our sin is so wicked, so heinous, so bad, it would separate us from God for all eternity. And the only way to pay for that is the death of his son. If there was another way, just as Jesus prayed in the garden, if there would have been another way, there would have been a provision for it, and there wasn't. What a God. What a Savior. And it comes, lastly, to number six, the outcome of believing the gospel. New life, regeneration. Regenerate. New life, born again. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that they, believers, may have life and have it abundantly, overflowingly, happily, joyfully, that he came to bring us true meaning and significance in life. It's a promise that's way bigger than just the forgiveness of sin. It's for new life, a life of meaning and purpose and enjoyment and significance and hope. Even when everything in this life seems to go the wrong way, hope for being with him in eternity. When a person gives their life to Jesus Christ and receives the gift of God in Christ for their own heart, Everything, everything changes. 
Jesus doesn't just become a part of your life. He becomes the point of your life when you come to him in faith. We are regenerated, reborn. The Lord told Nicodemus, you must be born anew, born again in John chapter three. Titus chapter three, when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, we looked at this a few minutes ago, he saved us, but let's keep going. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. No one can be good enough. No one can try hard enough to please God. But according to his mercy, by the washing of Regeneration. How did he clean us up to be heaven worthy? How did he change us to be citizens of heaven? By regenerating us, by changing us. Whom he poured out upon us in the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being made right, justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're changed, we're not improved. We don't just become nicer people. We're changed. Changed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, say it with me, he is a new creature, a new thing. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We'll talk more about that next week in our response. But Jesus just doesn't move in and take a room in the residence of your heart. He owns your house, your city, your county, your state, your world, your universe. The expectation for those who believe the gospel is they have new life. They're, they're, They're different, completely different, wonderfully different. Regenerated, born again, new people. So, what do you do? Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Time is fulfilled when he came. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Real simple. Repentance and belief go hand in glove. If you believe without repenting, that's faith without works. If you try to change and repent without believing, that's just going to be legalistic. True faith produces genuine life change. Boy, do you understand the gospel? Do you believe it? Have you repented, turned from your life and your sins and given your life to your loving creator? Have you? Not just understood things about it, but genuinely given your life to the Lord Jesus where he is Lord, you are slave. He owns you and dictates your entire life and he's good and benevolent, gives us fulfillment and abundant life. It is the better life with him than we could ever live without him. That's a macro, high-level view of a lot of scriptures coming together. What we need to do next time is pull those together into a simple way to understand and present that. 